Hi, and welcome to another episode of Community, the EcoVillage podcast from Gen Europe. I'm Fran Whitlock, and today on the podcast, we're talking about what it takes to build an EcoVillage that lasts with someone who's been there and done that firsthand. You know, always tell people, be patient, give it time. A tree doesn't go overnight. It will need time, but it will be beautiful. So trust that things need time to grow. Lucilla Borio co-founded Torri Superiore in an abandoned medieval village in northern Italy with a group of strangers 30 years ago. And since then, she's been training groups in the tools they need to create resilient communities. In our conversation, Lucilla tells us why Torri Superiore shouldn't have worked, but it did, and gives us some sound advice for anyone wondering what they can do to be ready to join an eco-village. Hi, Lucilla. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Can you tell us a bit about your history uh, with Torri Superiore, how it all began? In a very strange way, Fran, because I wasn't really looking for a community or an eco-village or any of that. At the time, the concept of eco-villages was not known. Uh, We had never heard about it, and it wasn't even a word in the dictionary, I think. So what I was looking for was just a house by the sea with my sister. And very casually, we were informed that a group of people, including some university professors and some social workers and some architects, were looking into restoring an abandoned village uh, in the hinterland of Ventimiglia. It was falling to ruins. It was about to collapse. And so I went, oh. Oh, that sounds interesting. I want to have a look at this. And so a friend of a friend told me, well, there is a meeting next Sunday. If you want to go and have a look, they're starting an association. And I just went out of curiosity to see what the story was all about. And I immediately fell in love with the idea, with the the force of the village. The meeting was not here because at the time the, the rooms were not really usable. It was in Torino, which is my hometown. And the group that gathered that was very large, about 40 people, uh, founded the association right there and then. And so out of that, slowly, step by step, the idea came to make it into a community and to live here permanently. And then slowly, slowly to do it in an ecological way and then to do guest house work so it all started with a huge fascination on this abandoned medieval village that just captured our energy. And we like made a vow, we will save you. We will save you. That was the idea. Now, uh, eco-villages kind of come in all shapes and sizes. They all look very different. Torri is a very kind of special and very beautiful and kind of unique setting. Can you just describe a little bit what it's like, you know, imagining you're walking in down down a street in Torri. Can you just tell us a bit the feeling, what it looks like? It's like living, walking and working in history because the village itself is 700 years old and it's entirely built in stone, local stone and local lime. And uh, it's uh, very high. I mean, the, the houses are five stories high. So it's unusually um challenging in terms of structure 
and the height was probably determined by the fact that the residents were only allowed to use a limited um, allotment of land. They couldn't expand. And we have been discussing about this. Why has it been defined like this? An idea is that they might have been Jews who were traveling through Europe at the time. It was a time of wars between the Gauls and the Ghibellines and a time of um, persecutions, very cruel persecutions. And so maybe they were looking for shelter. So they found a place here and started to build a few houses, but they were said, okay, you can, um, they were told you can build from this place to this place and no further. And so they had out of that to go upward to find place for all their children and siblings and, and family. But that's just a theory. We really don't know why they decided to go up so high. It's not that unusual in this area that you can find other medieval villages that are built over four or five stories. So even the, the lower Tolly, the village of Tolly that is nearby has a very high structure like this. So yeah, the feeling that it gives you is that you're working, walking and living and working in history and you really feel it. You feel it in the air. And Tori runs mostly kind of rural tourism, but you also have some agriculture. What are the main activities in Tori? What has been the main activity in Tori over the last 30 years, right up until COVID started, was, as you say, ecotourism and training. We run trainings on sustainability, group dynamics, permaculture, um, natural building, everything that has to do with the sustainable lifestyle. So that has been the main income and also the economic resource that has allowed a group of normal people, we were not millionaires, to put together enough money to restore it. To first buy it very slowly, it took us years to buy the whole place and then restore it, investing a huge amount of money to make it usable and livable according to uh, today's standards. And so, you know, tourism, trainings, uh, guest house, hospitality, restaurant, we also have a fully featured restaurant open to the public. And so that, was, that has been our life right up until April, 2020. And then since April, 2020, with the exception of a couple of months in the summer, um, we had to stop completely and we were closed down. We are on social security at the moment and we are dedicating more time to farming. We're doing social farming with another cooperative in the Valley and we're part of a, a food co-op, a CSA scheme that supplies food to about 200 families in the area. So we're doing a lot of um, farming and a lot of uh, also olive um, growing. We had a lovely season for olive oil. We were able to collect enough olives to produce a thousand liters of olive oil, which was very nice made us very happy and very pleased on that. And so, yeah, it's at the moment, it's mostly farming, community living. And we also run international programs like the European Solidarity Course, Erasmus Plus, CLIPS. So we try to keep involved and not to kind of close in on ourselves. We don't 
really want to do that. So you mentioned that one of the things you do is trainings in all different kinds of things, including uh, group dynamics and group building. You are also one of the creators of the CLIPS methodology, which is a big part of Gen Europe. But maybe before we go into CLIPS and that methodology, if I understand well, when you joined this community initiative, when you founded it together, it was with people you didn't really know. Is that right? And can you just talk a bit about how that was to go in on such a huge project because it's a big place, it's a big commitment, how it was to go in with a group of, of strangers, really? Yeah, it is something uh, very different from everything I teach today, <laughs> to be honest. So it just happened that the place was magnetically attractive to many of us. And so the core energy that got us together and kept us together was the intention. So the intention to save the village and turn it into something beautiful. And it has been strong all through the process over these 30 years. We were really kept together by the strange, almost bewitched energy of Dolly that has helped us to pull through all the ups and downs that we've had. And we had very many, as you can imagine over such a long period of time. But at the same time, I have to say that working together practically and manually and designing together what to do of the village and how to turn it into something collective and usable and beautiful, that really helped the group to learn to be very united, very aligned. It kept us aligned because we had so much to do and we learned to to know each other in a very different way. It wasn't a mental approach that we had. It was a very manual, practical way of being together because, you know, for the first five, six, seven, eight years, we were shoveling dirt and we were putting stone on stone and there was a little bit of talking and a lot of physical work. So working together was definitely a language that allowed us to see aspects of each other that we wouldn't have seen um, with a only theoretical or mental approach. And I'm always very much in favor. I've always encouraged groups to do practical work together. But yes, it's true. We didn't know each other. We, the group was formed and it is still formed by people who arrived here little by little through different, with different stories, different expectations, different um, perspectives and different ideas. But then, little by little, we started to feel together very like a very tight community, and we still are. After we, the, the present group has been together now almost 20 years, so it's a very solid and well trained group of people who, who are able to work together very, very well. And do you think that's also in large part to because I suppose you and other people in Tori, you do work on knowledge building, knowledge creation, sharing tools and methodologies for community building. And that must have a huge impact on your own group. We have a shared training, a couple of things that we really share. One is permaculture, because most of us had uh, at least the 72 hours course in permaculture. And then we also have an imprinting from the IFAC, Beatrice Briggs Facilitation School Center. Well, I met her in 1999. 
when I was working for Jen as a European secretary uh, for Jen Europe. And then I kept working with her all through the four years of my, of my office. And after that, she came here many times to give trainings to Italians and foreigners. And so we, we developed a beautiful, a beautiful partnership with the IFAC and their breaks and her methods. We brought them to Italy. We brought facilitation to the Italian network and consensus. We started explaining the difference between majority rule and consensus decision-making. It wasn't necessarily easy at the beginning because you must think that this was completely unheard of. And Italians really liked to talk for a very long time. And so facilitation for them was something that made them a little bit nervous because someone will tell you how many minutes you have. But then little by little, it really took on. And now it's so it's like a common language for every, all the nonprofit world now uses some sort of facilitation and something that is similar to consensus or sociocratic consent. But it's becoming like very common, very normal to think that you don't use a majority rule anymore because it's very oppressive for the minority. So we share that really in our community. We're very, very comfortable with this. And we use the formal consensus that is the more traditional way to do the voting process. So let's talk a bit about CLIPS, which is something we mentioned uh, briefly before. Um, can you tell us uh, what is CLIPS sort of, uh, what's it used for um, in communities and maybe how it was developed as a methodology? Yeah, I'd like to tell you a little story about CLIPS because it happened here during a national networks meeting. I think it was 2014, 15, something like that. We made a working group and we sat together with the question, how can we benefit eco-villages using our own personal experience as eco-village founders and residents? And so out of that discussion, the idea came that we would share our knowledge and wisdom into a structured way and put it into a manual. Oh, I said, oh, that's such a nice idea that we should share this first with each other and then with the with the other, even the newer eco-villages. And so we thought, why don't we apply for an Erasmus funding? And so we said, yes, we tried and we did it and it got approved. And so that was CLIPS 1. And we started, the first partnership had nine members and then we applied again and then we did CLIPS 2, which is still on its way. And the basic concept is exactly that we want to harvest the wisdom and knowledge and personal experience of those who did it and are still doing it uh, to create eco-villages that are healthy, strong, resilient, and that give people a good quality of life and that can last long in time. And so CLIPS has then taken the form of an incubator because CLIPS means Community Learning Incubator Program for Sustainability. It is a Gen Europe program because uh, all the partners are part of the Gen Europe network. They're either national networks or individual eco-villages. And we have, in, in the first uh, stage, we have created the CLIPS guide. That was a major effort with four or five authors, including myself. And then in the second phase, we have the website and the self-assessment tool. We have identified and created, defined 
in a standard format, a huge number of practical methods on how to do things, not only giving general guidelines as we do in the guide and hinting at facilitation, hinting at uh, the way of circle and this and that. But now in the second phase, we have really tried to distill the concept and make very practical and easy to use files that people can download and read and try to understand what can they do for every possible situation that emerges. It's very ambitious, of course, but we've tried to make it a, a ready, easy to use tool for people because through the website, you can just go in and read and download the different files. Also, we have developed a board game, which is lots of fun so that clips can be an inclusive uh, methodology. Through the game, you learn about community living and the four layers that we have identified that are you know, starting from the I, the individual, uh, that is always the core uh, element in any context, family, workplace, school you know we always start with with a person with the individual and then of course even more so in a community that's the first layer that we focus on and try to see what can be the difficulties and the shortcomings and the critical points for us as people who are doing things with other humans and then we move on to the collective level so community what happens when you start working and living in community and then we move on to the, what do we want to do together to our intent? What is our common intent? We are here for something. We're not just a group of friends. So we help people to focus better on their common intention. And then of course, the fourth level is structure. That's how do we work in practical terms? How do we make decisions? How do we organize groups? How do we uh, make a, a work plan? And then all this is aimed at doing something real so practice is the final um is the really the final aim because what we want to see is groups that go out in the world and change it for the better not just sit with each other having beautiful discussions which is a wonderful thing but you don't need to call yourself an eco village if you do something like that eco villages need to be active they need to be living models living examples of a different way of doing things together of a different level of mutual acceptance and tolerance and patience and uh, resilience. And so practice is where everything comes to life and what makes eco-villages visible in the world. So that's the final aim. And then also in clips three, there is a collection of real experiences, videos and photos, interviews that will show the practical side that I was talking about. What are eco-villages really doing? What do they look like? For someone who's never been in one or seen one or even thought that they would exist on this planet, but they do, and there's many of them. So 
These days, especially, you know, in the last year, given COVID and a lot of people reflecting on uh, their living situation, um, the challenges of being alone or being in a city, perhaps without a support network. Uh, in Gen Europe, we've really seen a rise in numbers of people contacting us saying, you know, I, I want to live in community. How can I start an eco village? There's really interest in community living. Now, you've obviously been involved in, in community projects for decades, through your own experience and through clips. So from what you've seen, what do you think the biggest perhaps mistakes people make are when they start a community? Uh, why do communities fail in their early stages? For many different reasons, Fran. I've seen problems arise from a variety of symptoms and situations. But if I have to identify one as the source of problems is the hurry. You know, thinking that everything will happen very fast. And when you work with other humans, you're not very fast. You know, it, it's working collectively is necessarily slower than working alone. Because you have to listen to other people's ideas and voices and allow them to understand your ideas and, and to process in their mind what they want to do. And this for me is really a basic break of personal freedom, giving people enough time to understand. And if we don't, and we push our desire onto others and we force situations, then we're most likely going to end up in a conflict because people will resent that. They will feel that they don't have enough voice. They don't have enough space. And conflict is normally the number one reason why communities, eco-villages fail, but also um, firms, you know, small firms normally fail because there is a conflict between the members and the leaders. So I think hurry, I very often see, and I always tell people, be patient, give it time. A tree doesn't go overnight. It will need time, but it will be beautiful. So trust that things need time to grow. And um, living together with others calls for a very high level of tolerance. Tolerance meaning recognizing that we are not perfect. We ourselves are not perfect and the others are not perfect, but we also are not perfect. And so allowing space for our imperfection and accepting other people's imperfections and limits. And then I've also seen some decisions that are made very early that don't necessarily help the community in its process. And like one is to go out and buy a piece of land or go out and buy a house and then come to the Riva, that's the Italian network or the Gen or, what, or to us and say, hey, I want to make a community in my home. And we go, ah, oh, you know, there's a little contradiction there because if it's your home, it will probably be perceived like being your home by the community. So you need to work a little bit on this, on ownership, on sharing. So it's not necessarily a good start, even though it is normal, it happens that people are attracted uh, by the physical structures. So by the land, by the houses, by the buildings, and start with that and invest their money. And then they hope that the community can take residence 
in a place like this. But I've seen very often a lot of problems with this because it's not a good, it's not a shared start. It's better to wait a little bit and move together towards a more balanced way to use your um, resources, also financial resources. And other problems that I've seen is um, a lot of people who just talk and talk and talk forever. Like they stay in the theory area and they're not able to move forward and really uh, create something. That's the opposite end of the spectrum. So on one hand, people go out and buy land and then they want the community as their baby. On the other hand, you can see people who are just very theoretical and they want to do everything perfect in process, in theory, in format. You know, they want to have the perfect decision-making procedures and methods and processes and to keep the minutes very well. And, but they never get to, to work. They just don't make the next step. They don't do an, an activity together or they don't, they don't start a project that makes them visible to the world. So, you know, one thing is getting lost in theory and one thing is getting slaves to the property. These are two very common problems that I see very often. And in the projects that you've seen that have really taken off, that have been successful, do you think there are any common success factors that have, have made them more cohesive, more, more quick to adapt to challenges? Is there anything they've been doing that's made it easier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've learned a lot. You know, I've visited in the past many communities in Europe and in other parts of the world. And what I have perceived and seen is that groups need to alternate phases in order to grow in a healthy way. You need to be practical for a period and then you need to stop and work on your relations. And then at some point you need to also revise your processes and then practical again. So you need to create a pace that is constant and alternates different um, energies because too much of each of these three will create imbalances. So some groups are too theoretical, as I would say, and don't develop anything. Two groups are too practical and become like workaholic and people get frustrated and then start in dropping out. So what good mix is when groups are able to change energy every so often. I'm not able to say how often it depends, months, years, maybe, you know, we've had a very long hyper practical phase, but then we started to work more on our inner processes and relationships. So I think it's, you know, the clips tells us a lot about this, that you need to be aware of the four layers the humans are sacred, they're important, they are your constituents. And so you need to take care of each person. The group is really the motor that gives the energy to the whole thing, but the group needs to know where to go. So it needs to have a clear intention and aim. And also it needs to know how to do things. So to have a good structure and a great structure, something that people understand and want to support. And all this, if it's in place, and if it's taken care of carefully, all this will give you good results. So it will give you beautiful 
communities, but also beautiful associations and beautiful food co-ops and beautiful communities. It applies to any collective uh, context. Of course, if you live together, you have an extra layer of intensity because you share a lot, you invest a lot. You see the others practically every day. So it becomes sort of like a family, an extended family a family of choice rather than a family of, of blood and genes. And so you have to be extra careful because it's um, like your whole life is invested in this. It's not like a, an association that you, you visit once a week. It's something that you do every day and every night of your life. Maybe one final question. I've heard a lot of people expressing often a lot of frustration, especially in these times when it's much harder to go out, to meet people, to sort of find your group, people who feel they would love to join a community or, or start a community, but they haven't yet found their place or found their people. But I think there's probably a lot that individuals can do kind of to prepare themselves uh, to become a, a community member before even joining a community, right? What do you think is the best thing an individual can do to sort of prepare themselves to get on the path to community living, to being in a group? Work on yourself. Work on yourself, work on your expectations and try to become aware of your own limits. And then go and visit, visit different places because as you were saying, each eco-village is different, it's unique. Each community has a different feeling, has a different personality. So once we will be allowed to move around again and travel, Visit communities as a volunteer, I would, I would recommend, because when you volunteer, you, you work with, with the, the, the residents and the other people who, who are there as you as volunteers, and you, you see signs that you don't necessarily see if you're a guest. So see how other people have done it and ask them questions and read about them. There is a lot of literature now available on eco-villages and communities. There are books, there are websites, there are um, videos. So be, get informed and, and at the same time work on yourself because it's you will be always with yourself wherever you go, whatever you do. And so you deserve the best and you deserve to be at your best to be able to give it to others and share it with others. And if you accept this challenge, you'll be a really good community member. It, and it's, I can tell you after 32 years of living communally, I'm still in this emotional gym every day. We have something <laughs> happening here. And I have to go, oh my God, how do I deal with this now? You know, it's a constant, constant process of learning and changing yourself and changing your opinions and accepting somebody, somebody else's opinion. It really helps you to, um, to remain flexible. I'm now 63 and um, I see my age peers who are not living communally and um, with much regret, I see that they are becoming a little bit rigid, like really attached to their little daily things that they don't want to change anything. If you live communally, I can guarantee it will help you to remain flexible and be willing to modify yourself every day because you will have to do it. And it's beautiful to be able to do it because in a way it keeps you young. 
Thank you so much, Lucilla. It's been really, really wonderful to talk to you. Um, I'll also share with everyone listening details about the CLIPS program with the CLIPS guide to download and also maybe some photos and images of beautiful Torre Superiore. Thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. It's been a pleasure. I could talk for hours. <laughs> if anyone is interested, please contact us right to the info at totally-superiore.org email. We'll be happy to reply to your questions. Wonderful. Thank you. For more information about CLIPS and to download the free CLIPS guide, which is a must for anyone thinking of starting a community, visit clips.gen-europe.org. If you enjoyed listening to Lucilla, she'll be speaking on a panel with other EcoVillage experts from Gen Europe communities on Sunday, May 2nd at Rebuild, an online gathering for anyone interested in building regenerative villages. You can see the full lineup at rebuild.co. And besides our panel, it includes some fantastic speakers, including Sunita Mba, who we spoke to in an earlier episode, Foundation for Intentional Community, and much more. You can get a discounted ticket using the code GEN10. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can listen to more episodes at geneurope.org podcast. Let us know what you'd like to hear by sending us an email via our website. And if you want to learn more about eco-villages, you can subscribe to our newsletter at geneurope.org newsletter.